Join FC Church. It's good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to NBC. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 3 today. Go ahead and get your Bibles, Bible apps open. Uh, and as we do, we want to be mindful of the situation over there uh, in Ukraine. And uh, we'll have some time to pray with our, uh, for our brothers and sisters in both Russia and Ukraine a little bit later on in the service. Um, but just wanted to just call them to mind. Um, my wife and I spent a little bit of time, a uh, short time, a couple of weeks in Ukraine uh, in the summer of somewhere in the early 2000s. I'm at that point in my life where I don't really remember specific years anymore. I remember eras because there's too many years now. <laughs> so I kind of go, okay, there's like the 80s. I remember that and the 90s and whatever. There's an era in the early two, 2000s where we went. Um, and I was, I, we stayed in Kiev uh, with those folks and we were helping people learn the Bible by helping them practice their English. I remember uh, our arrival there. It was in the summer. It was very hot. We get to Kiev. Uh, we go inside this uh, apartment complex, and um, there are a lot of stories I, I could tell about the toughness of those people, but they are tough people. Uh, they really are, and they live a tough life. And um, uh, the gentleman that was showing us around, his name was Vitali, and he uh, takes us up. Our apartment was like on maybe the seventh floor or so of this building. And we open the door and we go inside and it's just sweltering hot in there. Just swampy as all get out in there. And uh, so I go over, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to open the windows, but I can't open the windows. And uh, so I ask him for some help. And he says, oh, we don't open the windows. And I said, yeah, but in case you wanted to open them, how would you do that? Uh, and he said, no, no, we don't open them ever. And he goes, they're, they're all painted shut. And I said, why do you, why would you paint them shut? That's, you know, I was thinking in my mind, fire the painter, that's, that's lousy painting. And he said, no, they paint them shut on purpose uh, because people break in. And, I, and it's cheaper to paint them shut than it is to put locks on all the windows. And I thought to myself, we're like on the seventh floor. Why in the world would you need to paint windows shut on the seventh floor or up wherever we were? And, and he's like, well, people break in up here too. And I was like, man, you know, I'm from Long Beach and I know people can break into things. That's a part of the life that you live, but nothing like that, you know, and and yet there, you never got this sense that they were a despairing people or that they were uh, living their lives, um, you know, sad or, or anything like that. They were just uh, uh, living a different kind of life than we in the States do. And uh, I was amazed at their toughness. They're very proud of their country. Uh, they have every right to be proud of their country. And so uh, for them and then for the Russian Christians as well, you know, the prayer really needs to be kind of, hey, God, let your peace cover the area and do its thing. Uh, wherever that wherever that may be. So we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later on, but we can look at it and see some evidence of what we're going to talk about today. Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm under no illusion that this world is a finished product. I'm under no illusions that there is no sin in this world. Uh, I'm guessing you are not either. Romans 1, we're told that we're sinful, extremely sinful, so sinful in fact that is almost difficult to put into words. And then on the other side, God is so righteous that it is impossible to put into words. And the gap between the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of humankind is extremely wide. In fact, in Romans 2, he talks about how we tend to call evil good and good evil. We tend to not even, we're, we're so uh, familiar with sin and unfamiliar with righteousness that we have a difficult time even distinguishing between the two. Like, it's hard for us to even tell what the difference is. That's how ignorant we are at times. So you get to chapter 3, and it's a pretty bleak picture. 
Both wrath and eternal life are held out. And remember the context again. You got all the Jews coming back to Jerusalem, or back to Rome rather, after being dispersed. They're coming back and they realize the church has changed now. Christianity is starting to take on kind of a Roman flavor there in Rome. And uh, they're trying to help them say, yeah, don't forget about the old ways and the old customs and the old law and things like that. And Paul's saying, no, 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 nope. Uh, you're not under the law, you're under grace. And he's trying to explain to them why. In essence, he's saying, in part, all human beings are hypocrites. In the early part of chapter 3, he's saying, listen, if you're really under the law, then you're doomed because you can't keep the law. If you're under grace, then the good news is it doesn't matter, you know, it's not about keeping the law, then it's about being justified by the grace of God. And so he's trying, and that's something that's available to both the Romans and the Jews. So earlier he'll say, you know, you teach others, uh, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And of course, these are rhetorical questions. He's saying, if you guys are so big on the law, then why don't you keep it? Because you can't. Because you're that evil, that wicked, that you can't keep the law. So he goes on and continuing to try to describe the lack of righteousness and the futility of somebody trying to think, hey, I can earn my way into the grace of God. I can earn my way into heaven. There's an old preacher joke, and as most of them do, they, it starts in uh, at the pearly gates. And you got Gabriel there. Usually it's Peter or Gabriel, one of the two. And there's one where uh, he describes a, a guy who goes there and he wants to get into heaven. And he tells Gabriel, hey, I want to get into heaven. And he says, all right, well, here's how it works. You need 100 points to get in. You tell me all the good stuff you did. I'll give you a point total to go with that particular uh, thing that you did. So uh, shoot. And the guy says, you know what? I was married to the same woman for 50 years. I did not cheat on her in my mind or in my heart, either one. He says, that's outstanding. Great job. I'll give you three points for that. And he's like, three points, you know? Do you have any idea what it's like to actually live with her, though? You know, I should deserve more points than that. And he kind of goes back and forth, and he only gets three. He's like, fine. I, you know, I, I started a, a homeless shelter, and I, I housed homeless people and fed them and took care of the poor my, for most of my life. And the Bible talks about helping the poor, and so I did that, and and, and he says, that's outstanding. You definitely get to get a point for that. It's like, one point? What? You know, and so he kind of keeps going down his list. He talks about, you know, I was faithful. I went to church all the time. Uh, I served there. I was generous toward the church. I did all this stuff. And he goes, that's great. You, that's another point. You're at five now. Keep going. And the guy basically, you know, he's, he's, he's despairing. And he goes, he goes, there's no way I can get in if that's the way you're going to award points. The only way I'd get in is by the grace of God. And then he says, come on in right? And that's how the thing goes, and that's the theology of Romans. Remember I told you that little illustration that buddy of mine used a couple weeks ago? Jumping contests. And he said, hey, uh, he brought, he brought a, a, a kid out and put his hand up here and said, hey, t you know, jump and try and touch my hand. The kid couldn't do it. Then he brought out somebody tall and somebody athletic, and they had a jumping contest to see how high they could get. Right? Well, if, if the goal is to hit maybe 10 feet, like say a basketball rim height, then that's one thing. But if the goal is you have to touch the moon, then it really doesn't matter how high you jump, does it? I mean, none of you are going to get there. Not only are you not going to get there, you're not going to be reasonably close to getting there. You can't even begin to get there. And that's really the picture that he is trying to paint. He's trying to help uh, the, the church there at Rome, the, the Jews and the Christians both, 
to say, listen, I know that you guys enjoy being righteous. That's good. I know that you take the righteousness of God seriously. That's great. But you have two problems. One is the righteousness of God that you think you understand, his righteousness goes far beyond that to the point that you think that the goal that you need is like, say, the ceiling of the Ritz Theater. In reality, it's more like the moon or some galaxy far, far away. You have no chance. And then when you think about keeping the law and how good you are, you're still grading yourself against your, your fellow humans. That isn't the standard that God sets. The standard God sets is the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of the person sitting on your left or your right in church. So even if you beat them, you're still sinful. So in chapter 3, and this, this section of verses is going to be a little dense, okay, but bear with me because this is the core of Christian doctrine, of the atonement, okay, Romans chapter 3. And as we get here, uh, and as we start looking at this, understand the reason, you'll start to see why he's painted this kind of dark picture of sin on one side and this uh, picture on the other side of uh, the righteousness of God. We'll read Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now, you can underline that in your Bible, but now. The righteousness of God has been, made manif has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. As a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, here's a big word in the word of the day, propitiation. We'll talk about that one. By his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier, just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he says. Okay, what does that mean? means all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Not just the bottom 10% of the class. All. Okay, but yet there's still hope for us. Well, how in the world is that possible if everybody's fallen short of the glory of God? Who has hope? And the, the answer in the Old Testament might have been something like the righteous. And what Paul's trying to help me understand is the people that you describe as righteous, uh, it's a little bit like the standard of calling somebody pretty or handsome uh yeah according to who and and based on what grid there's nobody who has no flaws everybody's got flaws might be the hair might be the nose might be the eyebrows might be the height the weight the whatever nobody is perfect nobody and because of that there is no ability for us to earn or keep our way with god the good news for us is that God wants that to be bridged. He doesn't want that gap to exist. And so he has stepped in and dealt with it. Because the question that's posed by the grace kind of uh, theology that everybody gets frustrated with is, okay, well, if, if God then lets everybody in or it's accessible to everybody, then how, what's he doing with sin? If he's that righteous, how are we going to deal with the whole issue of sin? And so we typically get three options. God the ignorant, 
Okay, God doesn't know. So he's like the, uh, the parents who go to bed early and leave their kids out on Friday night, and the kid goes crazy, comes home at three, and the parents have no idea because they were asleep the whole time. God the ignorant. All right, you got God the incompetent. He does know, but he can't do anything about it. Right? Or you've got God the ambivalent. He knows, he just doesn't care. Right? Well, what Paul is saying, no, there's God the gracious. And God the gracious, and this is what separates him from the other, we'll call them propitiators out there, is that in most cases, like for instance, the Roman gods, if you made them mad, you would sacrifice something to them so that they wouldn't be mad at you anymore. You would be proverbially, perpetually like the husband bringing flowers home to his angry wife. You would be coming home trying to help them get happy with you again. Oh, I'll, bring, I'll, 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 bring them flowers. I'll bring them a sacrifice of fruit. I'll bring them a, a, a dead animal and sacrifice that to them. I'll, I'll bring something that will help you know, Apollo or whoever not be upset with me anymore. Okay, that was the idea. Propitiation is kind of that offering or that sacrifice. But what Paul says is that God is different here. God doesn't, he's not just the just, he's the justifier. He's the one that provides what it takes to satisfy him, not us. He took of himself and did it so that he would be satisfied, his wrath would be satisfied. When I was about nine years old, uh, I had a showdown with my mom at the dinner table. And this was a, over a turkey sandwich. Now, I, I like turkey now. I didn't like it then, though. And uh, to let you know how old I am, I wanted to go see my favorite TV show, my favorite. It was one of my favorites. And um, it was Joni Loves Chachi. I mean, that's how long ago this was. I know that, see? <laughs> the people that are older than me, and, and here's the difference. Those of you under 25 won't even understand what this is. But in those days, if you missed your show, you missed it. It was gone. It was like whatever your friends did Friday night and you weren't there, you can't, like, you missed it. Like, it was gone. You would never see it, ever. Uh, and so it, ever, all TV was must-see TV back then, all right? So we had a showdown. Time was a waste, and I had about 15 minutes before my show. And I did not grow up in a negotiating family, you know, where you can kind of barter with mom or dad. It, it was kind of you eat it or you stay. And if you expire at this table uh, at 95 years old, <laughs> having not eaten your sandwich, then that's what's going to happen. But there's no negotiating. Uh, there's no, nothing like that. So if that was the order, then that was going to be the order. Well, eventually my mom gets frustrated with me, says, all right, I'm going to, I tell you what, I'm going to go change this little laundry out in the laundry room. When I come back, that better be gone. And so she gets up, she goes back to the laundry room, and I had to decide what I was going to do. I said, I can't, okay, let's get rid of the sandwich somehow. I'm not going to eat it, so let's throw it away somewhere. Trash is too easy. She'll look there. So like a true, I mean, Jedi, I take the sandwich, and if you knew the layout of their house, this takes exquisite planning, timing, and, and execution to do because my bedroom is essentially next to the laundry room. So I had to go down the hall, which creaks like crazy, and I went into my room quickly. I opened the drawer of my desk, put the sandwich in the desk drawer, closed it, made my way back to the, dining room, or to the kitchen table, and sat down. 
and my mom comes back short time later. Oh, honey, I'm so proud of you. Yeah, mom, thanks. Thanks for, for making me tough it out. You know, in hindsight, I'm really glad I, you made me do that. Protein's good uh, for a growing boy like myself. You know, I'm sorry I upset your mom, you know, blah, 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 whatever I did. And so I get up, I watch my show. The problem was I forgot I'd put the sandwich in the drawer. I, I moved on with life. Um, days go by. Weeks go by. Months go by. Now all of a sudden, I'm smelling something weird in the room. I can smell it. My mom can smell it. So she'll come in the room and be like, what, is, what smells in here? I don't know. I'm like nine-year-old boys. Anything could be smelling in here. Right? Feet, you know, sweat, laundry. You know, take your pick. I have no idea. Well, I couldn't figure it out either one day. This shows you too, by the way, how often I go to my desk at nine years old. I open the drawer, and I mean, this thing is rancid. I mean, it's rotted away. There's mold everywhere. It, and when I open it, the smell was like nauseating. I almost like, I felt faint. It was like, Ugh. and I looked inside, mold all over the inside of the drawer. Now I got a problem because I don't want to take it out. It's too nasty. And I don't know at nine years old how to handle a situation like that. So I do what most nine-year-olds do. I decide I'm going to pour cologne on this. That's how we're going to solve the smell problem. And then we'll just... We'll just tuck it back in there. I'll figure out what to do with it later. So I start dumping my cologne on top, which at the time was Little Buckaroo. I remember it like it was yesterday. So you, now you've got a nine-year-old boy's cologne, which is almost as bad smelling as the sandwich. And I just start dumping it on the, on the thing, and I take some, like, talc powder or whatever and dump that on there to kind of disguise the look of it. So I guess I was, now it looks like first base sitting in my, my desk drawer instead of whatever with a chalk line next to it. And I keep that charade up. For weeks, not, not weeks, okay, because I can't figure out what to do with the thing, I leave it there. I don't know how the full length of this is, maybe my mom can, if she'll watch this at some point, and she'll remember how long it was, but it was months, it was not, I don't know if it hit a year or not, but the whole ordeal was long. Eventually I realized, I got to do something this is ridiculous. So I finally pulled my mom aside. I set her down. I said, Mom, listen, you remember that un unfortunate episode that we had back there? Yeah, I remember. You know, I, 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 how am I trying to say this? I lied. About what? About the sandwich. What do you mean? It was gone. Yeah, I know. I put it in the drawer. You did? I go, yeah. I was wondering when you were going to tell me. I'm sorry. She's like, yeah, I've been watching this go on for weeks. And I thought to myself, you evil woman, how dare you <laughs> uh, do this? So she was watching. She was watching me do the whole thing, you know, uh, and just like a true sociopath, letting me just you know, flounder around in my mess and watching me for sport, I guess, laughing at me, mocking me, making fun of me or whatever, like a, like a true Jedi mom is what she was. And I ended up getting punished for it. But at the same time, I thought to myself, as I went through all the iterations of what had just happened there, was she ignorant? No, she knew. Did she not care? No, she cared. But she was playing the long game. I was playing the short game in my mind. 
Was she incapable of doing anything about it? Nope. And in order for me to do that, she had one of two paths. I discipline them in trying to get them to learn from this, or number two, I pass over it. The language of Romans 3 is Passover language. Propitiation. Propitiation being like an offering or a sacrifice that's given to a God to get them their wrath or anger satisfied. And what Paul is saying is that that, because of the propitiation of Jesus, which was God the just, also being the justifier, that's where he's different than Zeus or Apollo. It's that. Apollo is on the take. God is on the give. These people have a, a gap or a bridge so wide they can never cross it. They don't have enough goats. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough anything to bridge that, to earn that. And so what I'm going to do is to provide them the only thing that can bridge the gap, and that is the blood of the lamb. Goes back echoes of Exodus here. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, God's getting ready to deliver his people. Nine plagues in. Pete wants to bring the people out of Egypt. Pharaoh's head is hard. He still won't let him do it. So God says, I'm about to, to kill the firstborn of all Egypt in an effort to get these folks out and to deliver them out of slavery into freedom. He says, so if you want, the angel of death is coming through. Take the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorposts of your house. Then when the angel of death comes through, he will pass over your house. Is the angel of death then, so when he does, is he ambivalent? Doesn't appear so. A lot of people perished that night. Is he ignorant? He just didn't know there was anybody in the house? It doesn't seem like that. So is he incompetent? He can't do anything about it? No, none of those. It's that there was a propitiation for the wrath of God. So he passes over. Now, there's a difference that Paul points out, again, between God and the gods of paganism, Roman gods, Greek gods, that God is his own propitiator. That Christ's death happens so that, Paul says, he might be the just and the justifier. And so what God requires, God himself provides in Jesus. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God's righteousness is available to all who believe. Now that's important, by the way. It's not everyone. It's everyone who believes. Who puts the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of the house by faith who says, I am trusting in the sacrifice of the lamb for my sin, to atone for my sin. It is that, those folks are the ones that he passes over their sin. But to those who don't, there's death. And so what Paul is trying to say is you get a choice between life or death, and you only get that choice because God gave you life by propitiating Jesus on your behalf. And so God has 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 25, passed over our sins. What does that mean? Well, Paul draws that distinction. I asked you as we were reading the text to, to underline but now, the way it starts. Because he's drawing a distinction between two times in a person's life. Two eras, darkness to light, sin to grace. He's, but now. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher, said, there are no more wonderful words in all of Scripture than those two words, but now. And he was thinking about all the times in Scripture that it uses those two words to contrast the state of people or the world outside of Christ with their new situation in Christ. If we've given our lives to Jesus, we don't live imprisoned to our past. Maybe we did, but now we don't. We're redeemed now. The price has been paid. God the just has been satisfied. His love has won the victory yet again. So maybe you were helpless, but now you're not. Maybe you were defeated, but now you're victorious. You were a sinner, but now you've been made righteous by the power of God. You were lonely, afraid, sick, dying, in poverty of spirit and monetarily or whatever it may be, but now you've been made different and new in Jesus. So the gospel in part is to live in the but nows, right? Now listen to the, the shame and the defeat and everything that pours forth from the evil mouth of Satan himself, but to live in the but nows knowing that the sacrifice of the lamb is painted over the door of your soul. And so there may have been that in your former life you lived complete wickedness, debauchery, whatever, and it may be even still that you struggle along that life. Now, Paul will talk at some length in chapter 6, 7, particularly about sin and why we don't go on sinning. But now we think about the but now. That's where we want to follow his, his thinking kind of as he goes. So God has done this for you in Jesus it isn't about striving to keep your salvation. Your salvation is rooted in your faith in Jesus, not anything you've done. So we honor that then through our works, through our holiness, our striving to be godly and transformed by the renewing of our minds, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, he'll say in chapter 12. But we live as redeemed people, not condemned people. So then he asks, Romans 3, 27 to 31, then what becomes of our boasting, he asks. It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He's saying uh, you uphold the law anyways because the law of God now is the law of grace. So you can't reject grace in the law of grace and still walk faithfully under the law. This is something that covers the circumcised and the uncircumcised uh, alike. This is like a mini version of Galatians laid in the middle of Romans in four verses. He says, you're not justified by works of the law. You're not. So get over it. 
Your salvation and your justification is out of your control. Good news. It's out of your control. You cannot, I mean, even right now, I'm hearing police sirens come through the alley behind us or down the street, okay? Something bad happened. And that doesn't change the salvation of the people in this room or where God is trying to take the universe at all. And so you realize that when we see it, all we're seeing, whether you're looking at Ukraine, you're looking at some ungodly, horrible thing that happens here in our country or, or whatever, you don't need to despair because we can see the lengths to which God will go to try and draw everybody back to himself. That's where it's going. The end has been written. The end of the show has been written. And while I'm watching episode two of season three, it's, it's already ended. The writing is on the wall. It is done. It's finished. That's the empty tomb. And so now, while I may be sitting here and I'm watching this stuff roll out and I'm actually in the show, right? But I'm here and I'm, I'm living through this and I'm watching it. I don't realize, I, I realize that, okay, even though this happened and this happened and this happened, I know how, where it's going and I know the role I'm supposed to play. I'm supposed to witness to the goodness of God and the righteousness of God that's demonstrated in Jesus. I'm supposed to live a transformed life, transformed in body and mind. I'm supposed to live as a living sacrifice because that's what God has called me to do. Uh, I'm, I'm supposed to uh, love my neighbor as myself and God with everything. That's my role. And to be a, a godly presence wherever I can be. But it is not to try to uh, do work that Jesus has already done for me on the cross by claiming that my sacrifice is superior to his. It's not. It never will be. was never supposed to be. And thanks be to God, it's insufficient. So he provided one that is sufficient on his own, on my behalf. And the sooner that I, I am willing to live in that reality instead of the other, because over here, when I think that I am, in fact, justified by, um, by, by, by my own works and stuff like that, then I live in a constant state of fatigue and terror. Fatigue because it's exhausting to feel like i got to earn everything. Every bit of affection I get from God, everything that, that he does for me, I have to earn it on the front side, like he's a, a, a banker or something like that. He's not. He's our father. Number two, it doesn't... Um, it's terrifying to think that you might slip in and out of heaven at every, on any given day. And thanks be to God that that's not, that's not how it is. We use these things, <clears throat> they're electronic devices, very complicated uh, on a regular basis here in our country. They're called, I think, they're called treadmills. Is that what they're called? Treadmills. And we put them in gyms and we use them. Uh, in theory, to exercise. You know, treadmills were not built for the gym. They were built for the prisons originally. And they were, they were put into prisons as a form really primarily of mental torture, not physical. Because the idea that you would put in the effort and you would continue to walk, but you wouldn't go anywhere and there would be no fruit to your labor, that that was viewed as a form of torture. Uh, and so they brought them in. The Brits did this, Victorian England. There's a lady by the name of Elise Fitzpatrick. She wrote a great little book called Because He Loves Me. 
And uh, she writes this. I'm just going to read it, her quote to you about the treadmill. She says, in Victorian England, treadmills weren't found in air-conditioned health clubs. They were found in prisons. Treadmills, or tread wheels, as they were called, were used in penal servitude as a form of punishment. Some tread wheels were productive, grinding wheat or transporting water, but others were purely punitive in nature. Prisoners were punished by spending the bulk of their day walking up an inclined plane, knowing that all their hard labor was for nothing. The only hope the prisoner had was that at some day in the future, he would have, quote-unquote, paid his debt to society and would finally be set free. He couldn't even look on his labor at the end of the day and know that if nothing else, he'd been productive. As you struggle with sin in your life, remember that Christ has set you free indeed and you are no longer sentenced to be chained to the treadmill of sin and failure. He has paid the ransom, demanded for your release from sin, and you're now walking in the freedom of the glory of the sons and daughters of God. For those who are in Christ, life is not a treadmill, sisters and brothers, it's a, it's a journey. It's a journey. So you're walking all the same, but there's a point to it. And there is a destination at the end. I think people often get concerned. I'm a recovering legalist myself. And I think you get into that point where you're so concerned that somebody will game the system. Uh, somebody's just going to go live, you know, the way they want to or whatever, and then I'm going to be here slaving away in God's salt mine. And then we're going to get the same reward at the end or whatever. And it's funny, this is why you, gotta, you really have to keep going back to Romans and Galatians over and over and over again. Because it reminds you, after Galatians makes this exhaustive argument, for instance, at the end, it says, don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. God's no fool. So don't, don't, he's not God, the enabling parent. He's God. Or in the case of Romans, it's evidence that you never really died to your old self in baptism. Romans 6 and 7. Because when you're baptized, you're crucified. You're, you're, you're buried. That's why it's immersion. You go under the water like a, like a watery grave. You go in. And when you come out, you're new. And so all you're doing is demonstrating that you never really surrendered yourself. So we don't go on sinning so that grace may increase, Paul will say. Megenoito in Greek. May it never be. So how do we keep ourselves kind of on this thing where we live in grace all the time? I'll give you just one quick one. Because time is not our friend at this point. Um, I think using the Passover language here is supposed to draw their minds to certain places. And, and, and the Passover feast, among other things, provided them a rhythm of thanksgiving. Why do we celebrate people's birthdays? It's a rhythm of thanksgiving. We're, we're glad you're alive. We're, we're, we're thankful for you, right? Wedding anniversary, same thing. Hey, happy five-year 50 year or whatever, right? I mean, it's a, it's a celebration of, with a rhythm to it that says we're grateful for this. And in the Christian world, uh, and for the Jews, it was Passover and Purim and the Feast of the Tabernacles, these other, these other festivals that they were asked to keep with regularity because they had to continue to be reminded of all the great things that God had, has done. And when you're doing that, then you're not worried about all the great things you have done. Does that make sense? When, the more I'm focused on the Passover, I'm focused on, on uh, these great mighty acts of God, then I don't sit around thinking, 
that I'm, I'm so great and God's lucky to have me and, and uh, or thinking about how I can earn my way back into the grace of God because you realize how many times he's come through for you and he didn't have to. You remember things like the Passover. I once was a slave and now I'm not. I'm free. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was, you know, but now, but now, and so the rhythms keep the but nows at the center of your life. So for Christians, that's what the disciplines do. Prayer does that. Parents or anybody that prays before your meals, I understand we got to do what we got to do sometimes as parents, but don't teach your kids that the reason you pray is because you'll choke on your food if they don't. I know I've been there, parents, and yes, I've shared that message before, but that's not why. The real reason why is because it's a rhythm of thanksgiving to stop and say, thank you, God, for giving us another meal, for putting this on the table, for providing for us enough that we we can buy food, for bringing enough rain that somebody could grow this food, for you know, whatever the case may be. It's short, it's small, but it's a rhythm of thanksgiving. And you know what it does? It keeps me then from thinking, boy, you know, I must be pretty good if people will pay me enough money to put food on the table. See how the rhythms of thanksgiving humble you? They keep you where you should be. Um, another one, prayer in general. There's a picture here of, these are Ukrainian Christians praying. This is about five days before Russia actually invaded. This is how they started. They all went out in the snow, and they got down, and they started praying. This came, Christine Kane put this out on her Twitter account about five days before the invasion. So what are they doing? It's freezing out there. You know, God wouldn't expect you to do that. He can hear you anyway. You don't need to pray. Sometimes you do, but not for the reasons you think. Sometimes it's good to, to back up and say, you know what, we need you every hour. We need to know, we, need, we, we, we just need to humble ourselves before God and ask that he do it again. You know, that, that he's willing to do that. And then for Christians, one of them for us is communion. That we share with all Christians all over the globe. And so while I do say it, sometimes it doesn't ring a lot because it is something we do all the time, like mealtime prayers. They're not all going to be a you know, trip to the Mount of Transfiguration, but, but it is important, those rhythms of thanksgiving. So when we do it, it has the echoes of the Passover in it, and the bread and the cup represents the body and blood of Jesus. Our propitiation, the one who God offered to himself and of himself to atone for my sins. And it's a rhythm of thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for providing Jesus as a way. Um, And so we're going to do that now. We're going to take communion. Uh, You should have gotten the elements on your way in. If you didn't, uh, if you put your hand in the air, we will have somebody bring it down to you. And so today, we will be mindful that we are taking this uh, uh, with our sisters and brothers all around the world. Ukraine, Russia, and think about how powerful it is that the Christians in both places are taking that meal at the same time that holds them together 
in ways far more profound than missiles and guns can ever, ever do. Um, and we take it with them. We take it with our sisters and brothers in South America and Central America, Mexico, Canada, Greenland, if anybody lives there, um, or whatever, whatever the countries are out there. And we do it because of Jesus, and we remember him. So for this, um, for Jesus, the second Passover, we give thanks today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with bread and cup, we say thank you. We thank you for this rhythm of thanksgiving. Father, for people that are still trying to earn their way to heaven, they're on the treadmill. Uh, we pray, Father, that you break down the treadmill and you replace it uh, with a compass and a good pair of boots to hike the journey that you've set out before us. Uh, Father, for those who think they're righteous enough to earn their way, Father, bring humility. For those who are continuing to live in sin, knowing that they're doing so despite the sacrifice of Christ, Father, we ask for repentance, forgiveness, and renewal. Father, for those living in defeat and shame, we pray, Father, that you would help them to live in the but nows and not in the back winds. And Father, for Jesus now, all over the world today, we take this small rhythm of thanksgiving, a great mealtime prayer, Father, to say thank you for Jesus for offering his sacrifice on our behalf. May the blood of the Lamb cover the doorposts of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name.